Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we've got a new patron to shout out. Thank you, Colby, for supporting the show. Thank you. You can, listeners, join our growing Patreon family over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast, where we've got monthly bonus episodes, a weekly newsletter, and more. You can also support us by leaving stars and a review over at Apple Podcasts or on your chosen pod platform for free. Even though we're three years old now, it still gives us a real boost and it makes it more likely that we get recommended to new listeners, which is huge for us. But that's enough housekeeping. Let's get to the episode. Oh, actually, tiny, tiny modicum of housekeeping. Oh, still some dust left. If you're listening to this episode, the second it comes out. So if it's calm down. before, yeah, first, <laughs> first of, all, of all, thank you. Calm down. But it's um, okay. Second of all, you may still be able to catch us presenting at the opening the ancient world conference. Yeah, we're presenting on Monday at noon Eastern-ish. Yeah. Noon-ish so, Eastern, yeah. I should say. <laughs> Noon-ish Eastern, yeah. Um, so perhaps you can just tootle on over uh, to saveancientstudies.org and get in on it. Mm-hmm. And that's Monday the 16th. Monday, yep. Monday the 16th, yes. We good now? Okay, well, believe it or not, it's... <laughs> it's already back to school season (laughs) i don't know how either we did it everyone we moved forward through time so we're getting back (laughs) to basics with an episode on stratigraphy (laughs) did i get it i'm uncomfortable with how you pronounced it just pronounce it how you usually Uh, do stratigraphy perfect thank you um and it's hard to believe that we've not done this topic yet although it's less hard for me to believe because i try to avoid saying stratigraphy I can't think. It sounds fine to me, truly. Okay. But, I mean, we've definitely mentioned it lots of times. But this week, stratigraphy gets to shine. So what we're talking about here is a principle of both geology and archaeology that, at its most basic, says that in an environment where layers of material gradually accumulate over time, as long as no additional processes disturb that environment, the deeper you go down under the surface, the older the material gets. So let's say that I'm baking the world's least appetizing layer cake and I start in the year 2000 CE. Yeah, that was when we were all worried about Y2 cake. (laughs) Yeah, Y2 cake. (laughs) I can't believe the cake metaphor is back. It's a good one. (laughs) It's a really good one. And who doesn't like cake? I'm sure some people don't. Uh, I mean, they're a little overrated if you ask me. Well, they're overplayed, but I like them. (laughs) So we'll say I baked my first layer in 2000 and then forgot about the project for five years. And then in 2005, baked another layer, stuck it on top. Then another in 2007, another in 2010, 
another in 2015, another in 2019, and a final one yesterday in our current year of 2021. So if I then cut into that cake, as I move from the top layer downwards, each layer below is older. The same idea applies to the accumulation of sediments in an archaeological site, though baking is not involved. Uh, the archaeological material that is found in successive layers at a site can be dated based on where things were found in the vertical layout of the stratigraphy. So this is relative dating. So you don't know like the absolute dating. You can't say like... Right, you're not getting a number. You, yeah, we don't know that one of the layers of cake is like six years old. We just know that it is older than the one over it and younger than the ones under it. Mm-hmm. So you can put things along a, a rough timeline, but you can't ex- assign exact values to that timeline. And so an archaeological site can accumulate layers of sediment in different ways. Wind can blow stuff that settles into the site. The site might get flooded if a nearby river overflows and that water will leave river mud behind when it recedes. In an extreme example, a landslide or volcano might dump a whole lot of material on a site. And so on and so on. And people living in a place also accumulate layers of stuff. Their garbage piles, their buildings, any Laundry. refuse left by domesticate hmm? Laundry. Laundry? Laundry piles, yep. Any refuse left by domesticated animals. <sighs> Those yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Says the person with the two smallest dogs on the planet. Chewed up chewed up monkeys. <laughs> Lost balls. Tiny tiny nibbles of green pepper. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of that, also the buildup of organic material at a site as grasses and peppers and other ground cover Banana plants chips. die and decompose. Oh, I want to venture under your couch. <laughs> just ask my, down just ask my last landlord. No, you don't. <laughs> uh, so as that organic stuff decomposes, it'll also create layers of soil that build up over time. So all of these processes occurring in whatever combination over time leave layers of sediment that look different when the process changes. So as archaeologists excavate a site and the artifacts in it, they're also uncovering those layers, which are a record of, here comes some vocab, and our word bank. This is in bold. Yeah, site have formation small, processes. You know, we have one other vocab thing later and I did put it in bold. <laughs> I should have done it with this. <laughs> and there's like a little box in the margin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so write this down on your, your homework. And because archaeology is almost always destructive by nature, it is. Yep. You're taking stuff out. <laughs> it's really important to recognize those layers, which not only provide context for archaeological material, but also help archaeologists reconstruct what has happened at a site since it was first inhabited. And in the early days of the discipline, recognizing that stratigraphy was a key part of understanding the past was one of the first things that really set archaeology off as a science, rather than just getting out there and digging for treasure. As a concept, concept, stratigraphy comes from (laughs) geology and the law of superposition. First written about by geologist Charles Lyell. Um, in the 1830s. It may be hard to believe now, but at that time, geology was just absolutely popping off in Europe and particularly in Britain. Uh, It was what affluent young gentlemen did with their time along with dabbling in natural history. Charles Lyell's multi-volume Principles of Geology was a huge bestseller. Like, seriously, it was. Like, really, like, I don't know how to, I don't know what I can compare this to that will 
just emphasize just how phenomenally popular this is. Like, shades of gray. Oh, not the book. I wasn't talking about the book. I was talking about sort of the activity of geology. Oh, I thought, like the book. <laughs> because really, it went through at least. Shale. <laughs> yeah. um, it went through at least Ooh, 12 editions. No, 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 oh. absolutely not veto it went through at least 12 editions in lyle's lifetime and made him internationally famous lyle had someone else to thank for the foundations of his work though a man named james hutton (laughs) man writes book (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) his name was james hutton merriam webster defines james hutton (laughs) um so hutton gets much less of the limelight these days from uh, limestone light these days than Lyle, oh. but his work was absolutely critical to our understanding of the processes that shape the earth over time and consequently how old the earth is. Oh, um, this oh. is really the first time in the development of the natural sciences in Europe that we really start to see observation and scientific thinking pushing against the explanations of the earth's origins found in the Bible. So keep in mind that to the average natural philosopher in Europe at this time, the earth was around 6,000 years old. Oh, much Based like, on cal- <laughs> much like the, the average uh, arts and crafts magnate in the U.S. Oh, boy. <laughs> Based on calculations made about a century il- earlier in the 1600s by Bishop James Usher using the King James Bible, ah, the, good, the date good one. of the creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The English that Jesus spoke. That's the English that Jesus spoke. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The date of the creation event itself was October 23rd, 4004 BCE. And so the popular notion was that the world had been in a continual decline Mm. ever since the perfection of Eden. Mm. Therefore, it had to be young, assuming a consistent rate of decline. Otherwise, the earth would be worn away to nothing. Civilization would have collapsed etc etc oh so the earth had to be six thousand years old otherwise we would be just this roiling mass it would be be even worse well i didn't realize that like that was the sentiment yeah i didn't realize oh Mm -hmm. wow yeah oh that's fun Um, i mean that's I don't think that explains it for every single person who who held that belief no but but like but for people it's a big part of it makes sense yeah sure So in 1785, James Hutton unveiled two papers together called Theory of the Earth, Parts 1 and 2, Tokyo Drift. Parts 1 and 2, Continental Drift. Okay, there it is. At a pair of meetings of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Hutton proposed, because he was Scottish, not that that matters, (laughs) just where he was. (laughs) I don't know. I thought it, you know. Ah. Hutton proposed that the earth constantly cycled through disrepair and renewal. Exposed rocks and soil were eroded and then formed new sediments that were buried and turned into rock by heat and pressure deep inside the earth. That rock eventually uplifted and eroded again, a cycle that continued uninterrupted. Hutton concluded, quote, the result, therefore, of this physical inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. It's nice. Oh, I do like that. Oh, I want to tattoo that across my, my rib cage. Okay. Well, that's, that's the ouchy place. It's one. No, you know, like, like above, yeah, above my six pack. Seltzer. (laughs) That comes at an eight pack. Oh, you got an eight pack, bro. (laughs) Hutton traveled through Scotland, Wales, and England collecting rocks. Yes. 
just got around all you did one country with a sack full of rocks even and surveying the geology Mm -hmm. through chemistry he did a chemistry and he determined that rocks could not have precipitated from a catastrophe like noah's flood the prevailing view of previous centuries otherwise they would be dissolved by water he realized that it was heat and pressure that formed rocks James Hutton was never famous during his lifetime, but his principles provided a starting point for Lyle's work less than 100 years later. So those are the roots of stratigraphy, but for our purposes, we're interested in the application of those principles to archaeological material rather than geology. So here is an excerpt from a piece on Thotco by an archaeologist named K. Chris Hurst, and we'll link on the show notes to this. And it's especially good, and I especially want to have this linked, because it includes a bibliography of foundational articles on stratigraphy. So if you want to do some more reading on the topic, I'd recommend you start there, the bedrock of the concept, if you will. Ah. So, quote... The importance of stratigraphic excavation to archaeologists is really about change over time. The ability to recognize how artifact styles and living methods adapted and changed. In particular, much of archaeological stratigraphic analysis is centered on recognizing natural and cultural disturbances that interrupt the natural stratigraphy. Two main excavation methods used in archaeology that are impacted by stratigraphy use units of arbitrary levels or using natural and cultural strata or layers. So arbitrary levels are used when the stratigraphic levels are not identifiable. So you just kind of have a solid, what looks like a solid wall of dirt with stuff in it. And so that involves excavating block units in carefully measured horizontal levels. So you're cutting away stripes of that wall in, let's say, five centimeter chunks or, you know, one foot chunks. The excavator uses leveling tools to establish a horizontal starting point and then removes the measured thicknesses, typically 2 to 10 centimeters, in subsequent layers. Notes and maps are taken during and at the bottom of each level, and artifacts are bagged and tagged with the name of the unit and the level from which they were removed. So they have a context. It's just not necessarily one that corresponds to any particular cultural period or natural event. Stratigraphic levels require the excavator to closely monitor the stratigraphic changes as she excavates, following color, texture, and content changes to find the stratigraphic bottom of a level, so figuring out when stuff changes. Notes and maps are taken during and at the end of a level, and artifacts bagged and tagged by unit and level. Again, stratigraphic excavation is more time-consuming than arbitrary levels, but the analysis allows the archaeologist to firmly connect the artifacts to the natural strata in which they were found. End quote. And we're going to take a quick ad break here, and then we'll come back to talk about some tools that archaeologists can use to help to identify and interpret the stratigraphy at a site. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back. So you're at an archaeological site. Imagine you're at an archaeological site and you're looking at the wall of a test pit Anna, tell folks what a test pit is. It is a carefully measured span of hole dug in the ground to see if anything's there. Yeah. Before you go like throwing down trenches and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking at this wall of the test pit and you're trying to figure out where one layer ends and another begins. It can be really difficult to tell sometimes for lots of reasons. Also because to be extremely unscientific about it sometimes one layer of dirt looks a lot like another layer of dirt Um, (laughs) and sometimes layers can be a real mess with intrusions from buildings storage pits burials even little animal tunnels getting in there or big animal tunnels badgers at one site that i went to at one point oh wow just tore through it yeah little guys big guys they're all just tunneling around yeah One tool in an archaeologist's arsenal when dealing with this puzzle is a Harris matrix, uh, which was invented in the 60s, 70s. Yeah. um, Named for Harris matrix. Yes. Dr. Harris matrix. Well, here comes another great vocabulary word. All archaeological sites are palimpsests or the layered result of a series of events. This can include cultural events such as a house was built. A storage pit was dug. A field was planted. A house was abandoned or torn down. And natural events, such as a flood or volcanic eruption covered the site, the house burned down, organic materials decayed, maybe a comet. (laughs) No, it's not a comet. (laughs) One of these days, it really is going to be a comet, and I am going to be astonished (laughs) and mad. Ah, yeah. And every listener will be like, oh, of course. When the archaeologist walks onto a site, evidence of all those events is there in some form. The archaeologist's job is to identify and record all of that evidence and then use the data to sort out what happened and when and where it happened. A Harris matrix is a great way to visually represent all of the possible events that resulted in what an archaeologist sees in the stratigraphy of a site. Welcome to the zoo. (laughs) Archaeologists divide sites into units usually in a grid formation. So let's say as an example that a site is divided into a one by one meter grid and each square of the grid is a single unit. So that means each of your units is one meter in in one direction, one meter in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So the Harris matrix depends on three types of relationships between the units in a site. One, no direct stratigraphic correlation Two, units in superposition, meaning they're vertically related. So, mm-hmm. you know, one, On one, top unit, of or one underneath. unit manages another unit. <laughs> and three. And you have a unit over to the side that's HR. 
the most difficult unit. And three, units correlated as part of a single feature, such as a building or a single deposit event. Basically, using a piece of graph paper, although now there's handy software that you can use to build the same thing. You don't need graph paper. Also, I guess you can also do this in an Excel sheet. Just doot, doot, doot. Well, you could. I'm saying you could. Not that you specifically, you, Amber, have to. (laughs) And archaeologists can map out the different features of a trench section. So the wall of the trench that shows the stratigraphic layers. Once mapped and labeled, you can then construct a flow chart that logically deduces the order of formation of each feature. This, as you already know, listeners, is visually based content that makes for really great podcast listening. But let's give it a shot. Say that you have a recognizable layer of reddish sandy soil. We'll call that layer A. But in the middle of layer A, you see that there's a pit that's been dug down through the layer and filled with gray and white ashes. We'll call that pit B. In order for pit B to have been dug through layer A, we know that layer A has to have existed first. Like layer A didn't form around this like Mm -mm. weird pit. Like some That's kind much of like less likely. Poorly rendered feature like in your game of Sims. Uh, mm-hmm. Layer A was the ground at the time the pit was dug. So in the order of site formation, layer A was already present when pit B was formed and so on. So with your visual map of your layers and features, you map out the whole sequence of events at the site. It's a giant logic puzzle made out of dirt. Which is that's yeah, good. I'm sorry, what you that's what I'm gonna send you for Christmas next year. Oh no. <laughs> I still haven't finished that castle. <laughs> it is gathering dust. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, and so what you end up with is but, but after you've done your be map. A, yes. Someone will be able to tell that the castle was there first and the dust came later. And accumulated around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if someone strategifies my life. Uh, yep. And so what you get after the Harris matrix is mapped out is then you kind of create a flow chart of the events and it helps you, you know, puzzle out what people were doing. And there's one more tool that can help with layer mapping at a site. And that's a Munsell chart, more visual content for this. <laughs> now we're just audio going to, we're just gonna describe colors that are almost the same yep. color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Light yellow brown versus lightish yellow brown versus brown yellow. So a quick note before we describe this, and then after that, we'll move on to some actual archaeological examples. But the Munsell chart is dependent on the identification of color, which is, in turn, dependent on the individual set of eyeballs that are doing the observing. We each perceive color a tiny bit differently, so the process is subjective. There are ways of digitally determining color, But since color is completely dependent on the reflection and absorption of light, it's still not a perfect system. You can't always guarantee that a light source will be entirely consistent. So while a Munsell chart can often be useful, it's not a completely objective source of data. But it's a really great way for people to communicate with each other um, about colors that are hard to describe. Well, so I own a Munsell chart and I I have it because my father had it from some field work that he had done as an environmental planner. And this story Uh is relevant and funny because um, he gave it to me and he's like, yeah, I can't really... I can't really tell much about it because, listener, my father is colorblind. Yep. <laughs> so the muscle chart is not. Not for him. Not where it's at for my dad. No. 
<laughs> yeah, that is a significant dis- disadvantage <laughs> for, especially since there are significant sort of, well, I don't know. Is he red, green, colorblind? He's, he's got a couple different things going on. I, I know that okay. um, when we were kids, he wasn't allowed to try to teach us our colors. My mom was like, I'm oh, not, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> no, dad said that was orange. Oh, so what is this thing? <laughs> the Munsell color system is a means to visually identify and match color using a scientific approach. Albert Munsell was both a scientific thinker and an artist you can be both, who wanted artists and scientists to have a system that made it easy to express colors in a concrete way. So not just reddish-orange, which it means one thing to one person and another thing to another. So something that assigns values to color. This has nothing to do with actual concrete, although that would probably have a Munsell color value as well. Grayish. The Munsell chart is based on three attributes of color, hue, value, and chroma. So the hue is the color, the primary or secondary color, red, blue, yellow, green, orange, purple, etc. You can combine these too. So you've got red, yellow or yellow, green, and all of these in the Munsell chart are abbreviated to letter codes. Then you've got value, and that's how light or dark a color is. In the Munsell system, value is indicated with a number. So two, four, six, and so on. The value scale moves from the lightest at the top to darkest at the bottom in descending order. So a two is going to be darker than a six. So the bigger the number, the lighter the color. And then chroma is how weak or strong the color is. The saturation, if you've ever tinkered with photo editing or Instagram, because that's one of the things that you can fiddle with in your Instagram photos. So in the Munsell system, chroma is indicated with a number, again, typically in the range of 2 to 14. Um, if it's something fluorescent, then that number goes way up, uh, yes. upwards of 30. The uh, sandy know, fluorescent the, wear. The neon wear <laughs> of the late 80s. So the, the chroma scale runs horizontally and moves from weak to the left to strong to the right in ascending order. So again, a two is going to be weaker than a six. A six is more saturated. And I've seen, you know, there's ways to think about this that are kind of clever. Like I've seen Munsell charts for your coffee. Yeah. Right? Like I like mine at a whatever. Yeah. And so a Munsell color book has swatches of colors of varying hues, values, and chromas, but the corresponding number of values. So if one archaeologist notes down the color of a sediment in the field and someone far away in a lab pulls out their copy of the Munsell book and flips to that page with those same number values, they can get a reasonably accurate sense of the sediment color without having to depend on a photo, which again, because of it's dependent on light and the way that light hits a surface so that they may not see through a picture what someone in the field sees with their eyes. So it's a good way to get a relative sense of sediment color. And again, this isn't a tool that is precise enough to be diagnostic. You can't tell how much clay or iron or chalk is in the sediment from the color alone, but it's a very good systematic way to talk about color. Okay, we're done with the um, sightseeing portion of this podcast. Uh, One more quick ad break, and then we'll take you on a little field trip. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. 
you'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right. We're back. I hope everybody has their permission slips. I'll be collecting them. I just mine just says Anna's mom. <laughs> you know, I um, uh, my first uh, in Archaeology 102, we took a trip down to the Walters Art Gallery to look at some stuff. Oh, and we were supposed I to sign to a release that. so that we could yeah. know. Um, and one of the things that you were supposed to certify on your release was that you were um, over 18 years of age and you were able to sign this. As yourself. Oh, were you not yet? I wasn't. And I had to go to my professor. Well, I went to the TA who then went to the professor and was like, uh, and she was like, <laughs> what? And I was like, Hi, I'm not 18. And she's like, what? <laughs> Just so good. And she's like, <laughs> Did she not realize that some people might have? She didn't realize that, you know, it was, you know, March of my first year of school and I was not 18. Yeah. And yeah, that's um, how calendars work. Yeah. Cause I, Oh, cause I, you were a little baby. I was a little baby. And oh. so I was like, well, what do I do? And she's like, um, she's like, sign it. And I'll just put it in the middle of the stack and we'll hope for the best. And I was like, okay. <laughs> 15 years later under the bus, she goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take me away. <laughs> So um, we're going to take a really quick trip over to Spain. And I said we were done sightseeing, but we got one more sight to see. <laughs> well, so sign us up for tapa sangria and some light acrophobia from this one um, and a nap. We're on a tour of the incredible stratigraphy of Grandolina at the site of Atapuerca. There are actually six sites within Atapuerca because it's an interconnected system of caves that hold an incredible amount of really important Paleolithic archaeology. But Grandolina takes the cake. That layer cake, remember? Because it's stratigraphy, right? We're bringing it, bringing it around. Bringing I'm it a writer. Circle. Anna's a writer. So Grandolina <laughs> has more than 20 meters of archaeological deposits divided into 19 levels. 11 of these levels include human occupation. Most of the human deposits, which sounds like poop, uh, which date it, between... It, well, I mean, some of it might be. Mm. <laughs> which date between 300,000 and 780,000 years ago are rich in animal bone and stone tools. Are we saying bone tools and stone tools or animal bone, end of thought, and stone tools? In this case, I believe the latter. I'm not... I can't confirm So stone tools that there are and animal bone bones. tools found. <laughs> <laughs> Grandolina. There might be. There's no reason why you know, there I'm, wouldn't be. I'm acutely aware of, of of bone tools after being in your household. So Yeah, it's a real bone tool household around here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the bone tools in. Um excavations. Bunch of tools. <laughs> excavations began in the nineteen sixties CE and are still happening. Paleolithic excavation is very fiddly work, often done with brushes and dental picks, and more patients than I could ever muster in 
a thousand lifetimes. So to get through more than 20 meters at that scale hurts my brain. Yep. Mm. Hurts my lower back. Just thinking. Yeah, that too. I I never really did well at excavation because my body is not meant to be pretzel shaped for long periods of time. I never did well at excavation because my brain doesn't work like that. Well, there's other places than I know. The field for so, so I've learned from my own show. Um, in the show notes, we'll link to a page that has a description of some of the history of Atapuerca, the hominin remains found there, and some photos of the excavation, along with an extremely detailed illustration of the stratigraphy of the Grandolina. So Anna's helpfully pasted the last image here for me, so I'm just going to look at it. There's so many layers. Wow. Just like, so it's a, it's a 3D kind of stitched together digital scan of the site to the left and then to the right there is uh, an illustrated digital kind of plan of all of the actual stratigraphic layers with descriptions so it's like here's where the floodplain is here is a debris flow yeah (laughs) so amber's making that noise so let's move on before you get too overwhelmed by the grandolina stratigraphy i want to share one final thing stratigraphy related this is a story that we've actually mentioned before on the show but it was it was in an early episode and it might even have been an early patreon bonus episode i don't remember every detail of every show amazingly i feel like it might have been about the future is it that one that's very possible i i'm so impressed because i very i barely have the available i think we did it on old news we may have done it on old news and then we did it in the future (laughs) <laughs> well, we did it in the past about the future. Isn't that a crazy that I could pull that when meanwhile, like, it's friend of the show, like texted me last night to be, to like respond to something we said in the show. And I was like, I don't disagree, but, but what sparked this? And she's like, you said it on your show. And I was like, Oh, what ooh. episode was it? Was it this week? It was the one that otherwise... came out like two days ago. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not great. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I can't remember that, but I remember every word to the poem I had to memorize in fourth grade. And how is that fair? So if this is familiar to some of our listeners, cool. uh, my apologies for the for the deja vu or deja entendu, if you want to be French about it. Uh, I thought it was too interesting and, and relevant not to share again. And also slightly depressing, but cool. my turn to end the show that way. Never, never too depressing to mention again is my motto. I don't lead with that. Uh, <laughs> So when I was putting the script together, I started thinking about the global stratigraphy that might accumulate during my lifetime, especially since the past year or so has meant such a drastic change in lifestyle for so many people. The artifacts that accumulate with time have to do with the things that humans are making, using, and discarding. So if we zoomed a thousand years into the future, is there going to be a recognizable layer of disposable masks, gloves, and other remnants of the COVID pandemic? I'm not sure. But... Thinking about that brought up the memory of this article that I'm going to share with you now, excerpted and paraphrased from 2018 in Smithsonian Magazine. A quote. When our civilization is long gone, the Earth will continue to bear the effects of the time we spent here. Effects like nuclear isotopes in sedimentary rock and the fossilized remains of plastic on the ocean floor and concrete on land. But perhaps more than anything else, according to a new study in 2018, the great legacy of our time will be chicken bones. Lots and lots of chicken bones. Writing in Royal Society Open Science, Royal Society Open Science, where does one put the emphasis? Royal Society Open Science. A team of researchers. Thank you. Thank you. 
argues that the remains of domesticated chickens, Gallus gallus domesticus, will be a major and unique marker of our changing biosphere. For one thing, there are just so many of them. If you combine the mass of all the chickens in the world right now that are being grown for food, it would be greater than that of all other birds on Earth. All of them combined. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So many chickens. I mean, granted, lots and lots of birds are quite small, but it's so many chickens. So this is an abundance of chickens. So Okay, so Mm. this is a biomass, biomass of chickens, not just like per capita chickens. We're not doing a chicken census. Correct. No, this is not a chicken census. No, we're just rounding up all the birds and making a chicken ball and then an everything else ball. And the chicken ball is bigger. Seems like PETA PETA might have some objections to that study. Probably. I think PETA has objections to the farming of chickens in the first place. But (laughs) with an abundance of chicken dinners comes an abundance of chicken remains. In the wild, bird carcasses are prone to decay and are not often fossilized. But organic materials preserve well in landfills, which is where many chicken remains discarded by humans end up. And these don't degrade. They mummify, according to that study. It's possible that our time on this planet might be recognizable in a thousand years by a chicken bone layer. Just wild. Maybe in a thousand years, there'll be an even thicker chicken bone layer. Now, it's maybe we'll more. be growing chicken in labs by now. By well, then, I mean. It's, it's not wild. It's domesticated. It's very domesticated. Yeah. Yeah. The bones are noticeably different if you look at, um, well, if you look at sort of you know, <laughs> feral chickens, which is a funny thing to think about. But, you know, if you look at chickens that aren't being farmed and then you look at the ancestral jungle fowl mm-hmm. that... Um, that chickens were bred from. Mm-hmm. And then you look at a farmed chicken, the bones are different for all three, like noticeably different. So yeah, wow. chickens go figure. Well, after looking at all those tweets we got about stratigraphies. Thank you everybody, by the way, yeah. you really um, helped out and freaked Amber out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I've tucked a lot of those things away for future yeah. episodes. So yeah. if we so. didn't mention the sites, thank you so much for, for helping me think about archaeological sites with really great stratigraphy. And thanks for the, I have um, a list now. the small degree of exposure therapy that I got for my uh, very severe <laughs> acrophobia. Um, got a little, got a little notey, a little notey on my watch. I'm like, oh, someone tweeted at me. And I look at it and just fall off the couch. So Thanks. Um, <laughs> oh, so buddy, one, I'm sorry. This, this one was a little on the shorter side, you know, for reasons that that may may feel implied when I say that I couldn't remember something that happened two days ago um, that came out of my own mouth. But we hope you had fun. We hope you had fun listening. I had fun. Now you learned a thing yeah. or two. School, school so. school's back. Yay. So we'll be back next week with new content. Um, also kind of school adjacent, which you can find mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts um, or you know, apps that perhaps work, like Spotify, Audible, or wherever oh. else you like to listen. Oh, have you? Have you? Uh, <laughs> gosh, we can have a different conversation about the new iOS. That's a different show. Just, just hobbling the <laughs> podcast app. I know many people who agree with you. <laughs> I do too. I don't like change, so I'm dealing hate, with whatever. I hate change, so stop it. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Especially when it's a change in that direction. But hey, <laughs> while you're on Apple Podcasts or not, wherever you go, um, 
leave us a review on there if that platform enables yeah. stars and reviews. That'd be really helpful. Really appreciate it. Um, nice. Yeah, you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And hey, if you ever feel like dropping us a note, asking us a question, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. We like getting um, questions and, and, and nice things. Unless your question is about whether we want to renew Norton for a year. We get so many we get of enough those of those. fishing and sp- <laughs> Please don't congratulate us. Please don't fish us. Calling us precious user. Your sc- subscription to <laughs> the PC antivirus for your Mac <laughs> Just, <laughs> It's renewed. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, but all of that, plus merch, plus show notes, plus more, it's all over on our so website, which is thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.